From the Western Riverside Council of Governments, I'm Rachel Singer, and this is CogCast. Ron Leverage has a lifetime of public service, from serving as the City of Riverside Council member beginning in 1979 to serving as mayor from 1994 to 2012. He is a highly regarded regional, state, and national leader. Today, Professor Leverage joins us on the podcast to talk about leadership and the historic city of Riverside. So, Professor Leverage, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, Rachel, I'm delighted to be here. Um, so, can you just start us off and share about your educational and professional career journey? Well, maybe I should. I was actually raised in Northern California in a kind of working class community called Concord. Uh, uh, Folks moved there. There were 5,000 people, and it was part of a suburban change, and uh, I think now it's well over 100,000. Went to uh, undergraduate work at uh, at University of Pacific in Stockton. It was uh, where my mother, father, aunt, uncle, another aunt all (laughs) went to, uh, did their undergraduate work, uh, and then went from uh, Pacific to uh, Stanford uh, Started off in Soviet studies as a graduate student, uh, wrote a MA thesis on Soviet personnel policies. Uh, <laughs> but in graduate school, you sort of uh, work less in a field and more with professor. And so I worked with a fellow named Heinz Ulau, who uh, was doing a study of uh, all the Bay Area cities. And uh, he, he had interviews uh, with every council member in the Bay Area. My particular role was to uh, uh, look at city managers in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So I spent quite a bit of time actually driving around interviewing city managers, wrote my uh, thesis and uh, later a book on city managers and legislative process, which was my introduction to cities, was mm-hmm. this uh, project that, uh, uh, that I did uh, graduate work with. Uh, and at the time, I thought I had read everything that had ever been written about city <laughs> managers. Uh, certainly not true now, but it was then. <laughs> so um, as a longtime resident then, maybe not a native of Riverside, but as a longtime resident, what are some of your favorite things about the city of Riverside? Well, Riverside has, you know, one, it has a history. Um, and uh, it... Uh, it was for a long time sort of the center of kind of stress. I always Kevin Starr called Riverside the quintessential stress town. I think mm. it gave it a kind of history and character. Um, I remember my coming down for an interview at uh, UCR. It was a time where you could uh, you flew in from LAX to Riverside on a helicopter. So mm. with the helicopter pad was next to Fairmont Park. And I remember walking around Fairmont Park after interviews and saying, there is, hey, this is a city which has a history. It has a past to it. So there's, there's a rather extraordinary uh, history connected with citrus. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's also, I mean, I, one of the things that's just interesting to me that her, 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 her
fellow named Bob Dahl, who was president of the American Political Science Association, said, talking about what the ideal size of city. And he had two kind of pivots for the answer to that question. One, it needed to be large enough, so it had resources, and could do interesting things. Mm-hmm. And needed to be small enough so you could participate and make a difference. He pitched the ideal city somewhere between 200 to 300,000. <laughs> and that's in many ways what Riverside represented. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, resources to, to be an interesting place, but size where you could participate and make a difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think as as a fellow Riverside um, resident, too, it's it really does hit like a sweet spot here to where there are many things to do, but it's also a tight-knit community. So it really is kind of the just right fit um, to your to what you were saying. So um, switching gears a little bit, when you hear the word leadership, what generally comes to your mind? Well, it's making good things happen. And uh, the question then becomes, how do you do that? Uh, you know, you need some vision of what what the good city is. You need uh, strategies to uh, to get there. You need to pay attention to uh, to uh, to best practices, uh, uh, and then you need to uh, you need to kind of uh, get people to the table to to uh, to make things uh, make things happen. I remember in two thousand five we declared itself wanted to be the greenest city in uh, Southern California, and more so than even Santa Monica. And for a while, we were competing nationally with Santa Monica. Um, but in preparation for doing that, we created what some called a community parade. The idea that uh, we had done a task force report, and we, we had recommendations. But before we brought it to the council, we took that idea, the concept to any number of community groups. We had postcards, uh, we had letters, uh, and so when it came time before the city council, um, chambers were full of people, actually, are outside, mm-hmm. he had all this uh, like, um, expression of support, and uh, it was really the start of our being a green city, but the start was not simply having a report, it was having a community parade mm-hmm. in advance of the report coming to the council. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, in your many roles that you've had in your career, in your continued career, you've led a lot of people, um, led a lot of groups of people. And so where have you learned your leadership skills from? Was it perhaps like a mentor or a book or um, what kind of resources helped you? Well, I think it's it's a good question. Uh, I mean, I've sort of, Run for office thirteen times, so you're partly a, it's an incremental kind of kind of leadership uh, uh, development. Um, you know, some of it is you uh, you identify political heroes and what their aspirations are. I mean, I had said I had three political heroes in my life. Uh, one was Henry Cisneros, who was a mayor of uh, San Antonio. I thought a great great mayor and. Mm. Uh, Second uh, 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 was a uh, was Bob Kennedy, and almost every talk I ever gave uh, as a 
major talks. I always quoted from Bob <laughs> Kennedy, and uh, then it was uh, Bill Bradley, who was a uh, U.S. senator from, from New Jersey, but he was also, you know, he was a Rhodes Scholar, played mm. on the New York Knicks, and those were my, became three kind of heroes, and you in part followed and modeled uh, after uh, after uh, after those three. Mm-hmm. So when you and your wife first came to Riverside um, after your um, doctorate program, correct? Um, what what was what were your perceptions of the area and how has it changed since then? Obviously, from did you say sixty nine hundred people? Well, yeah, was probably <laughs> maybe a little bit larger. But. No, I uh, I came down here to interview in December, and Marsh and I came down visited this place in January. And uh, somebody said, you know, it's pretty smoggy in Riverside. I said, well, it didn't seem too bad when I was there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd never, uh, we hit the Cajon Pass and started down into, into, this, uh, into this area. And I couldn't uh, believe what one saw, the kind of smog that simply hung mm. uh, in almost impenetrable way. Uh, uh, first thing I did when I got here, I went up to the Air Pollution Research Center and talked to a fellow named John Middleton, who was the director, later became the first national director of efforts at the federal level, but said, what is this stuff <laughs> and how do people take it? Uh, uh, every day this wave came in from over the Kellogg Hills up the, up the Santa Ana Canyon and, uh, uh, you felt it in your chest, uh, felt it in your eyes. Uh, you wouldn't go outside without checking what the levels were. Uh, you had charcoal air, uh, air conditioner. You had to have charcoal to try to protect the house. It was something that dominated the conversation, mm. and it dominated the judgment of uh, this uh, of this area. That's so. When I I first came, I became interested in in and, and air pollution, particularly public attitudes toward mm-hmm. air pollution, and also thought that if, as later on, is that if you were wanting to do something about air pollution, it, uh, it clearly required a regional effort. Uh, Riverside needed to be a regional leader. And mm-hmm. that uh, my early commitments to regional uh, leadership was to try to do something about uh, the air in which you breathe and which in some ways define this area. Mm-hmm. So when you first started your career, what, what was the transition between you being in your career and then wanting to go move towards public service and wanting to run for council and then later wanting to run for mayor? What, what entailed that transition for you? Well, there was no kind of road to Damascus uh, <laughs> time, but uh, what I taught at the university began to, uh, every class I ever taught at the university, I had students do research papers across the freeway. This was our real world, it was our laboratory. Um, I placed interns and uh, uh, starting off in fellow came to see me in 1967 and said, I want to have an internship with a city manager who was then named John Wentz uh, Riverside. Mm-hmm. And so I'd never really heard of the concept, but with the start of an intern program, we placed uh, students all around 
this area. We ended up placing people in Sacramento and uh, in, in D.C. I taught campaign classes, which began to connect me to, uh, to the uh, to, to political campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, people began to ask you to serve on... Uh, my first, I think, invitation for the city was to be on a city charter review committee. So what I taught and what I was studying and what I was writing about began to connect me to place. Mm-hmm. Most uh, most faculty worry about field, uh, and but what I was doing as a political scientist began to take connect me to, to place, and uh, and I you know. I, I was appointed in 1970 to be a member of the Environmental Protection Commission, a charter member. Mm-hmm. So we, it was an effort to kind of change the directions of the of the city. Uh, the city council didn't particularly like what we were doing, but it was. Uh, and so um, my other, it's also it's hard to explain now, but uh, the uh, the late 60s, uh, particularly. Uh, were an extraordinary time at the university and for the country. I mean, this was the Vietnam War time. It was uh, environmental movement. It was the women's uh, women's movement. It was the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had all these major major kind of national forces that were mm-hmm. impacting to, impacting place, and uh, you became. You became part of that. Mm-hmm. If you, and so I, I, they had an urban coalition which the chancellor had organized. Uh, this is really following the the Watts riots, and uh, I, you know, I became a part of that to see contributing what one could, but mm-hmm. trying to, it began to connect the university and the community, and and so it, I can't identify any other. Uh, uh, University of California professor who's been elected to a city office. There may be, mm-hmm. but I don't know of any. And uh, but it was, it's what I originally studied. Mm-hmm. It's what I did uh, in the classroom as a teacher. What I was doing by way of uh, teaching and research that sort of led me to place and mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, I guess the most dramatic event for me is that we lived out near in the Greenbelt, and my wife wanted to uh, experience more of the old section of town. You know, so we moved uh, downtown. And if I'd stayed out in the Greenbelt, I never would have run for the city council, and never mm-hmm. would have been mayor. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of moving downtown, and uh, there was an open seat. And uh, <laughs> somehow I began to run and uh, and uh, was elected. And it's interesting because I, I ransacked every textbook I or paper I could find on how do you run for office. So <laughs> sort of a textbook campaign. But what was not really part of that is that as an academic, you see most voters as types or variables or categories. But when you knock on a door, and I thought I maybe knocked on 4,000 doors or somewhere in that area, a type or category or a variable doesn't answer. <laughs> and so you have people answer and You discover, they tutor you and you discover who they are and what mm-hmm. they care about and uh, 
what they're bothered about uh, and what they want to see happen in their neighborhood and in, in, in the city. And uh, I think those of us who knock on doors are not the same. Mm. And uh, I think my rebaptism into the city was the experience of knocking on doors. Mm. Yeah, and that goes back to what you said earlier about um, leadership, about how leadership is making good things happen and really seeking to engage the community that those good things are impacting day to day. And it does sound like even in your transition from, or not transition, but the, yeah, I guess transition to being more in the public sector scope was a really natural integration because of your investment in the community as well. Yeah, well, sort of the connections began to get set up and uh, it, it just it seemed to be important. And and I think, again, there was, I really came of age in the late 60s and it's uh, it's Bob Kennedy's call of trying to make, uh, you know, why not? Why, mm-hmm. why ought to, but uh, part of one's obligation in life is to try to make, make a difference. And, uh, So um, throughout your career as the mayor of Riverside, what was one of the most challenging things that you faced in office? Well, it's different from being a city councilman to being a mayor, but uh, so I was really, we had all these years up, it's about 33 years, which is third of the <laughs> century, which is in retrospect a long time. Um, I think for an elected official, it's the use of time. I mean, I remember when I was first elected to the city council, the city manager, Brea, said to uh, Loveridge, uh, you do know that being a member of the council is like a sponge that is mm-hmm. asked for all the time. He uses all the time you have and asked for more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as an elected official, you have this kind of effort to try to have your political life, you have your personal life, you have your professional life. Mm-hmm. And there, Real risk is your political life pushes at both the personal and the and the mm. and the uh, and the professional, and so maintaining some balance. But as mayor, the great risk as mayor is that you could work, uh, you know, ten hours, twelve hours a day, mm. going to meetings, saying good things about different groups that invite you, and uh, next day do exactly the same thing. <laughs> but cumulatively, you have no impact because all you do is go to meetings and mm. say good things about mm-hmm. groups. And it's how to develop an agenda so that you're, you're doing more than simply mm. kind of cheerleading the city. Mm. Yeah. So um, kind of broadening the scope of our conversation, what issues do you think are not getting enough attention in our region? You know, there's enormous commentaries on housing and transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that we don't talk enough about, in my view, or is placemaking, that hmm. trying to see these cities in our region being as good places to live uh, and understanding what kind of choices are represented in being a good community or a healthy community. Uh, uh, we're clearly going to grow in the future, and I think that test or the task or the challenge before this region is, to, is, is can we grow and be uh, develop uh, our cities and our communities as good places to live mm-hmm. and uh, I see that as a challenge before us that we don't talk enough about uh, and I do think that this idea of placemaking I think that it 
ties back to something you mentioned earlier too of um, public perception, the amenities or the things that are able, the things that yeah. are offered to the community and how that affects their, their own residents' opinion of placemaking. Right. Well, and the most important, I mean, it's fairly cliche, but the most important <laughs> advertisement of a community is the, is, is, is the judgments and opinions of people who live in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's more than picking up the trash and cleaning the streets. I mean, mm-hmm. it's how do you create a kind of vital or robust place? And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's the great... I mean, it's it's the challenge that's uh, that's uh, that's before us. Mm-hmm. So, just wrapping up our time, um, I have one last question for you. But as a professor at UCR, a um, seasoned public servant, um, and many other things, what what do you think is the most important thing that you would want your students or even young professionals to take away from, I, I guess, the legacy that you have written? <laughs> well. It, if you take classes at UCR, there is uh, take classes in political science. Particularly, we teach about international affairs. We teach about uh, national affairs. Mm-hmm. We teach about comparative politics. There's some con- uh, we focus on political theory. There is no attention to place. No attention to to uh, to local uh, local matters and. Uh, Local matters, in many ways, you know, it's the old notion of uh, all politics is local, but it's much more than that. It's where quality of life is experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where one lives. Uh, one, one judges uh, quality of life by really the criteria of the community uh, uh, in which you, uh, which you live. And I'm trying to make the argument uh, to UCR students is that there is uh, there, there is the challenge, the the opportunity, particularly for public services, a local challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost all employment in, is not at the federal level; it's at the it's at the local level. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the, the great advantage of being in local politics is that uh, there's an old kind of saw that you know there's uh, no democratic Republican way to fill a pothole. But at local level, you can eyeball what you're doing. That is, there there are consequences. If you have a policy idea or push a particular program, you can. It's not an abstract concept. It takes mm-hmm. a specific form. You can see that, and you know this is that when you drive, you can drive down Main Street of a city and you got a pretty good idea what the city's about visually, <laughs> that mm-hmm. there are markers of its vitality and whether it's economically working, whether it's neighborhoods are working, They're not abstractions. These mm-hmm. are concrete observations. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's, I think, one of the exciting things of working with local government is that uh, you can see the direct consequences mm-hmm. of what you do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast, but then also just for your many years of teaching and public service. We're really thankful for your investment in our area. And I, as a current Riverside resident who was born outside of the region, I'm very thankful for your investment as well and how you really have made this a place that I want to be in, a place that I want to call home. And so thank you so much for your investment. Do you have any final remarks before we sign off on the podcast? No, I think the uh, um, 
I used to the other just reflections. I, I mean, two things which I cared about as mayor and talked about. One was uh, neighborhoods, because I think where people live not in the city, they live in neighborhoods. And, uh, and the other idea was social capital, that, uh, that the strength of a city and a community is the kind of social capital that exists. Uh, it's not, uh, uh, you know, it's not a set of abstractions, it's a set of relationships that people have. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. For more information on WRCOG and the CODcast, please visit our website at www.wrcog.us.